Do words or actions establish a person's credibility more? Most of us would say that a person's actions speak louder than their words. Thus, the saying goes, if you're going to talk the talk, you must walk the walk. Practicing what you preach also works. The Gospel according to Mark focuses primarily on Jesus' works, not his major discourses, to validate his messianic claim, which is why Mark's Gospel is shorter than Matthew's. For Mark and his Gentile audience, actions speak louder than words. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is the Spirit-filled servant, serving servant, suffering servant, and the special servant of God. There is no doubt that Jesus came to serve, and his service ultimately validates his messianic claim. I'm Ron Jones, and this is Something Good. When Jesus came the first time, the Jews expected him to be a warrior, one who would overthrow the Romans and usher in Israel's golden age. And one day, that's exactly what he will do. But that was not his original purpose. Hello, I'm Ryan Davis. Thanks for joining us for today's Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones. Isaiah chapter 53 points us to the purpose of Christ's first coming, not as a soldier, but as a servant who would defeat sin, Satan, and death itself. That's the picture of Jesus painted for us in the Gospel of Mark. And Ron takes us there next as he continues his teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Stay right here or listen to the broadcast on demand from our website, somethinggoodradio.org. Subscribe to the podcast at Spotify, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Ron with part two of his Something Good Radio message, Mark, He Came to Serve. Jesus came first as uh, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 points us to that. The suffering servant who defeats sin and Satan and death itself through his atoning sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. And so early in his ministry, he almost squashes the messianic expectation of the Jews and he sidesteps their inclination to make him king on their terms and in their time. Although Mark's gospel is moving rapidly, Jesus doesn't let anybody rush him to the, the cross or rush him into uh, an expectation that they had of, of Messiah. Now, following his entrance into the holy city days before Passover, uh, Jesus uh, sort of you know, pokes the religious leaders in the eye and kind of kicks them in the chest a few times. First by cursing a fig tree, chapter 11. Then by cleansing the temple of money changers. Uh, challenging the teaching and the authority of the Pharisees. He also tells a parable, one of the eight that Mark records, that suggests the religious leaders are like evil farmers who mismanaged God's vineyard. Uh, this is no way to win friends and influence people. But Jesus isn't trying to do that. He, he's, he's on a pathway to fulfill his messianic purpose. Uh, the chief priests respond to all this by plotting his execution. And Mark records this in chapter 11, chapter 12, and again at the beginning of chapter 14. And, and you know the story, uh, at least the broad swaths of it. What, what happens next 
could be explained, as I said in Matthew's gospel, as, as a good man who landed on the wrong side of religious politics. That's how uh, humanists view the gospel stories. Ah, Jesus was a good man, he was a good teacher. And uh, he, he just kind of got on the wrong side of some of the leaders, the religious leaders, and they plotted his demise. Now it takes the eyes of faith to see Jesus yielding his will to the Father's eternal plan to redeem lost sinners through the blood sacrifice of his one and only son. That's what's going on here. And now it was the Father's time. John is the timekeeper in his gospel. Now it was Passover time. Now it was time to be a little bit more forthcoming and more revealing. Uh, thus the triumphal entry on the exact date, the 69th week of Daniel's prophecy, in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 9, is uh, Palm Sunday, as we call it. The precision and the timing of the fulfillment and the presentation of Israel's Messiah is a, a stunning thing to read about. But I'm well, I'm not getting ahead of myself. Let's forward ourselves a little bit further into Holy Week. Now we're at Gethsemane where Jesus prays, not what I will, but what you will. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas betrays him with a kiss. The rest of the disciples abandon him, running scared into the night. The Roman soldiers who arrest Jesus then lead him to the high priest, a man named Caiaphas. And Peter appears in Caiaphas' courtyard and denies Jesus three times as various strangers identify him as one of Jesus' disciples. Then it's early in the morning and the religious leaders gather to discuss the situation. Uh, they take Jesus to Pilate. Uh, and Pilate oversees a trial that mocks justice. And um, Pilate ends up ordering uh, the king of the Jews crucified. Mark gives us that detail that the sign placed above his cross said, the king of the Jews. It, it was meant in mockery, but nothing could be more true. Jesus is on the cross uh, by the third hour of the day. That would be 9 a.m. Uh, he's on the cross for six hours. And Mark tells us that darkness covered the land from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, uh, Jesus gave up his last breath and he died. He died there on that cross. Uh, during that time, he was so alone that he even cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark, like Matthew, includes only one of the seven last cries of Jesus on the cross. We'll get to the others in Luke and uh, John's gospel. Now, if that were the end of the story, um, chapter 15, and it closed out, we would have a spirit-filled servant and a serving servant. We would even have a suffering servant, but not a special one. Chapter 16 tells us why Jesus is the special servant. Because he died on that cross, he went into the grave, but the grave could not hold him. And three days later, he rose 
from the dead. That makes him special, makes him unique. It makes the name of Jesus a name like no other name. It puts him in a category by himself. Do not insult the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by comparing Jesus to Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith or some other religious leader. He came up out of that grave. And this is the linchpin of Christianity. If Mark chapter 16 doesn't exist, Christianity crumbles like a cheap house of cards. But we have chapter 16, and if Mark's gospel is the first that was written, as some scholars say, then uh, chapter 16 is the earliest record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Mark, with his customary economy of words, he, he places three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, at Jesus' tomb early in the morning on the first day of the week. He shares some of their emotions and the quandary they were facing and discussing as they were making their way to the tomb, uh, bringing spices to anoint Jesus' body. Chapter 16 and verse 3, they say, uh, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? That's an obvious question. It was a big stone, a heavy stone. Remember, from Matthew's gospel, we learned that Pilate secured the tomb, rolling a big stone and dispatching a Roman guard and then sealing the tomb with a Roman seal. It did everything to secure it because they were afraid uh, his disciples might steal the body and then, you know, spin that, that yarn about him being resurrected. As they get closer, they see that someone has already rolled the stone away. By the way, uh, an attorney who used to be a skeptic, his name was Morrison, he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And like a lot of people over the last 2,000 years, he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and kind of make Christianity a farce. <laughs> in the process of doing his, his research, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Who moved the stone? Well, they step inside the empty tomb and they see a man dressed in white sitting on the right side. Chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. I'm slowing down a little bit, slower than you know, it feels like in Mark. He, he's moving fast through the scene here. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, circle the words and Peter, we'll come back to them in a moment. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This divine messenger, who was probably an angel, uh, invites the women to come and see. Still ahead, the second half of today's Something Good radio message with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. If it's been a while since you stopped by our website, somethinggoodradio.org, you may want to pay us a visit. We've released a new streaming platform for Something Good Radio and Something Good Television, SGTV. You'll also find Something Good Travel, Something Good Courses, and the new Something Good Digital Library. 
That's where you can search for biblical answers to your questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. Watch, listen, and download for free. That and a lot more is available now at somethinggoodradio.org. As you know, Something Good is a listener-supported ministry, and your donations do make a difference. Today, when you give, we'll give you access to an ebook written by Dr. Ron Jones that goes along with the sixth road trip in his teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. This digital resource covers the four Gospels and the Book of Acts. Donate online at somethinggoodradio.org or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23456. You can also call our offices at 757-276-1099. And here's Ron with the rest of today's Something Good Radio message. Mark, he came to serve. I love that. It's a small detail, but he just says, come on in. He's just, you know, sitting there in the tomb. Come on in. Uh, There's no fear of full transparency. Come on in with your questions, with your investigation. Christianity has always invited inquiry and investigation. Bring your questions. Bring your skepticism. Nothing to hide here. Full transparency as opposed to cults that often shroud their beliefs in mystery behind closed doors. That's not Christianity. The tomb is open. Come on in. (laughs) Pull up a chair. Let's sit around and just talk about this for a little bit. And bring the hardest questions you can ask. People have been doing that for 2,000 years. And many who, who had doubts, many who began as skeptics, Once they they honestly investigated the whole story, they were compelled to become believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Not intellectually, but with all of their heart. Actions speak louder than words, and the heart speaks louder than the mind. Uh, then the angel instructs uh, the women to go and tell Jesus' disciples what happened. I, I just love, again, the detail there. Come and see, and then once you're convinced, go and tell. Go and tell the disciples. By the way, who did you tell this week that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and was gloriously raised from the dead. That's our responsibility as uh, followers and disciples of Jesus. Come and see. Bring all the questions you want to ask. Spend as much time investigating as you will, but if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility and I have a responsibility to go and tell. Tell his disciples and Peter. Now, Back to who Mark is and his relationship to Peter and uh, Peter being a primary source for Mark and this kind of being Peter's memoir. Can you picture Peter maybe standing next to Mark and you know, looking over his shoulder at the desk and saying, just put Ann Peter in there. I'll tell you the story later. This is the Peter who denied Jesus. And when he heard the rooster crow, it devastated him. And it takes the other gospel writers to tell us the full story here, uh, that that Peter, (laughs) he didn't know what to do. He just invested three years of his life, right? He went back to what he knew, fishing, 
That's where he started. He was a professional fisherman. He knew the sea well. And he pulled a few other disciples in, too, who were licking their wounds. And they went fishing all night and caught nothing. Sort of like the day they met Jesus. And that's when Jesus was sitting there, according to John chapter 21, and he told them, hey, hey boys, <laughs> did you catch anything tonight? Oh, smart aleck. No, we didn't. Well, why don't you cast the net on that side of the, of the boat? Well, who is this guy? What is he? Okay, just, just do it. And they caught more fish than they had ever caught. And John tells us that's when Peter jumps out of the boat, runs to Jesus, as much as best as you can through the water, right? Gets there. Here's Jesus uh, fixing a little, you know, fish and chips breakfast for them. He, he serves his disciples, pulls Peter aside, and just has a little conversation about what happened at Caiaphas' house and restores Peter. So, so here's Mark, but go tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter. Um, it's, it's that little detail that suggests that Peter, who had betrayed the Lord, received the Lord's grace, his grace. When you go and tell the disciples and whomever, always bring a message of grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark's gospel ends rather abruptly, uh, and there's a little notation in your Bible from verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16 that you know, has, has created some question about the authenticity of these verses related to some manuscripts. I'm not going to go into that detail this morning. You, you probably have a notation in your Bible that sufficiently answers some questions there. However, there is no doubt that Jesus came to serve, just like Mark said. His actions, well, let's just say they speak at least as loudly as his words. The words and the works of Jesus Christ. Mark's emphasis is on what he did. And his service ultimately validates his messianic claim. There's no action, there's no work that he did that speaks louder than his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. What are you going to do with that? You've heard the story, maybe the Cliff Notes version of it. But what, what are you going to do with a Jesus who rose from the dead to validate every claim he made and every prophecy made by the prophets of old and the claim even of the eyewitnesses who saw him? You can't be neutral about it. You can't just shrug your shoulders and say, well, nice speech, pastor. No, th this, is, this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this story is why you and I can have our sins forgiven and have the, the hope of eternal life. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's bad news. It means we're in a rough spot. The Bible goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, that the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. Something had to be sacrificed. It wasn't you. It wasn't me, even though we deserved it. In God's providence and in his plan, he was kind enough and gracious enough and loving enough to send his son, the spirit-filled servant, 
the serving servant, the, the suffering servant, and this special servant from heaven who paid the penalty for your sin and for mine and rose triumphantly from the grave so that, yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, Romans says, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or to put it back in Mark's context, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thanks so much for being here for today's Something Good radio message. Mark, he came to serve. Dr. Ron Jones joins me now. And Ron, you mentioned how often Mark used the word immediately in his gospel account. In fact, more than 40 times. And I'm struck by one use in particular where Jesus is baptized. God audibly says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then Mark says, immediately the spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. Let's talk about this for a moment as we wrap up today's edition of Something Good. Oh, that's a fascinating question, Brian. And I think we can find two very practical lessons here that uh, can help us gain a better understanding of God and of the difficulties of this life in general. First, it's not always Satan who tracks us down and tempts us. It's true that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That has always been the case. But there are times when God leads us straight to a challenge, a testing of our faith, if you will. God does not tempt us with evil, but he will test our faith. And he allows Satan to roam this earth, and in this case, tempting even his own son. God does not allow this or directly test us for our harm, but Brian, he does it for his glory. So that's the first lesson we should keep in mind, that nothing happens to us that God does not allow or in some cases author. The second lesson is this. It is sometimes right after the highest of highs that we experience a period of extreme testing or temptation. Uh, Maybe you're asked to be a guest speaker at church for the first time, or maybe it's something vocational, a promotion at work, or an award, a hefty raise. Uh, These are the times when very often we may be led by the Spirit to endure an extreme test of our faith. And I encourage our listeners to keep this in mind the next time they experience one of life's uh, highs, we might say. Be wary of a potential challenge to come your way shortly thereafter. Prepare for it in advance. God did not lead the Israelites into the wilderness for 40 years. No, they chose that for themselves through disobedience, and sometimes so do we. But God did lead Christ into the wilderness for 40 days. And sometimes he may do it to us as well. Not to harm us, but to test and ultimately strengthen our faith and make us totally reliable on him. That's Dr. Ron Jones and some final thoughts on today's teaching from the Gospel of Mark. So before we sign off, Ron, tell us what's in store next time as you move ahead in your current series. Well, Brian, if I ask a group of leading men and women on the world stage, uh, maybe doctors and scientists and the like, if I ask them who is the greatest man who ever lived, I imagine there would be some sort of long debate among them. But for me and for Christian people in general, Uh, we'd quickly say the greatest man who ever lived was Jesus Christ. 
And that's the part of his identity shown to us beautifully in the Gospel of Luke, which is our next stop on the ultimate road trip through the Bible. Luke reminds us that yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. Not half and half, not several parts God and a few parts human. No, he was 100% both. Yes, a mathematical impossibility, but as we'll discover as we go through the Gospel of Luke, it is exactly who Jesus was. I'll talk about that and plenty more next time, right here on Something Good Radio. That's tomorrow when Dr. Ron Jones shares his message, Luke, Behold the Man. Join us then for Something Good and for Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio. I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for listening.